Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My 7 Wonders. In ancient times, the greatest monuments and superstructures, such as the Great Pyramid of Giza or the fabulous Hanging Gardens of Babylon, were celebrated as wonders of the world. And like Days of the Week and Deadly Sins, there were always seven of them. In recent centuries, the Great Wall of China, the Taj Mahal, even the London sewage system have been recognised as more modern wonders. Other magnificent sevens salute natural phenomena, such as the Grand Canyon in America or the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. But what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? That's the question I ask my guests in this podcast. And the guest I'm asking today is Esther Ranson, Dame Esther Ranson, DBE, who from 1973 to 1994 presented and produced That's Life on BBC One, an all-embracing combination of consumer affairs, human interest stories, light entertainment, serious investigations and weak puns. 21 years of primetime Saturday evening, sometimes getting up to 20 million viewers. A figure now way beyond the wildest dreams of even Anton Deck and Strictly Come Dancing. The programme established Esther in the national consciousness, enabling her to set up major charitable endeavours and campaigns, particularly Childline to help young people suffering abuse and later Silverline to assist the elderly. So, Esther, I wasn't uh, sure what to expect from your list of wonders. Something deadly serious, followed by a cheekily shaped root vegetable. But your first is a bit of a surprise. I don't know why I imagine you more at home in St. John's Wood rather than the New Forest. But but you live there now. I do. I do. I've been coming to the New Forest since I was eight years old and I'm now 81. So it's quite a long time. And I was a Londoner. And I was a London child. And so the magic of this forest came like a glimpse, really, of something magic, like like a fairyland. And my sister and I used to get up at six in the morning and just roam around the forest. It, it, it was and is a passion of mine. And I'm delighted to be living here now. And well, I'm uh, interested in very much interested in trees and uh you know, woodland and and forestry. Is that what you like about the place as well? Do you like the trees or is it just that it's fresh air and not in the hurly-burly of uh, London streets? Well, it's trees, um, lots of trees, which I'm fascinated were actually many of them planted because they're beech and oak, very ancient, and they were, of course, used as building materials. Um, so my cottage here has plenty of oak beams in it. Ships timbers. So first of all, the oak was used to create a wonderful wooden ship. And then when that fell to bits, it's now my cottage. Um, But before all that, it was Heathland. And that's when one of the Normans, I can never remember which William it was or Henry, one of the early ones, a thousand years ago, decided to make it a royal hunting ground. And so they roamed through and if any peasant I think I may be making this up um are people allowed to make up facts on their you can you you can do thanks well I think what I may have made up is that when peasants tried to um kill deer and eat them themselves they had their hands chopped off it's not um an invention that one of the Norman kings was killed with an arrow that bounced off an oak um, so that is true. But the other thing about this forest, do you know this forest, Clyde? I, I have been there. Um, and, and of course, I, I can confirm some of what you're saying there. Uh, as I understand it, uh, you know, forest didn't originally mean particularly place with trees on. It was just land that uh, usually the king says, I want to I want to hunt here. So you keep out of it, you uh, hoi polloi. And, Peasant. yeah, peasants. Yeah. And you're right. There were, there were severe penalties if you, you know, nix the king's deer. So, but trees tend to grow. But the other thing. 
Sorry. Yeah. So I was just going to say trees tend to grow in places that aren't cultivated because that's what, you know, that's what Dame Nature uh, wants us to have. Well, we've also got ponies here. We've got New Forest ponies. It's an actual breed of of horse and they roam. People think they're wild, but they actually do belong to people, but they roam free as do cows. There's some wonderful Highland cattle with enormous horns around where I am now and um, some sheep. We don't like goats. Goats eat everything. But everything else, um, we have adders. I haven't seen an adder. I have seen a grass snake. It's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. The animals are roaming through the forest as if it belongs to them and they actually have right of way over the road so it does belong to them right well um so that's that's a rural idyll um not 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 just countryside but almost wild countryside as you say they're not you know people do own own things do, do you own ponies yourself have you got a highland cow that you milk every day or a few <laughs> sheep or i don't i don't i admire them and i have the right to graze them because the cottage where I live has commoners' rights attached to it. And I get quite a lot of wood each year, um, which I could use in an open fire, but I'm not very keen on that. But I still collect my wood. And uh, I've got a quite nice garden here. So it it just, it, it heals me. It sounds a bit peculiar maybe but I feel it is a healing place to be because of all the green the oxygen that the trees give out you know it's it's a lovely place to spend my life and I never thought it was possible my late husband Desmond always thought we would retire here and I said to him I'm sure we get bored and he was right and I was wrong not for the first time well, um, so I, it's strange to think of you as retiring because uh, you you have always very uh, energetic. I've mentioned a big success you had on television, but you've you've headed up campaigns. Uh, do you still take an interest in? I, I know Child Line has gone on to be part of the NSPCC now, but all your many other charities that you've uh, um, either been the patron of, or the founder of, or uh, contribute. Do you still do that? I do. I do. And they take up a lot of time, which I thoroughly enjoy. Um, Childline occupies a lot of my life still. Um, I do this sort of virtual conversation with our volunteer counsellors. I remain in touch with what children are talking to us about because people ask me, you know, I, I'm, I write for newspapers and magazines about what issues are affecting today's children. But then, as you mentioned, I've also got the silver line, which is equally absorbing because it reminds me what older people need and the issues affecting them. And then, as you say, there are some local charities and other charities that I like to work with. And I do get called upon. I'm I'm the media's OAP reporter, so I get called upon as um, – it's not my official title. It's not one I particularly like. But, but – um, they ring me up at all hours and they say, what is your view on the vaccine, etc. And so I shoot my mouth off. Speed, hustle, hurry. Everyone trying to get somewhere. Yet on either side of these swarming highways, a stretch of English country in which to linger. A place out of this modern world where the simple pleasures are enough. And for once you can call your soul your own. This is the new forest in Hampshire. Sometimes called a miraculous survival of pre-Norman England. Tall trees. Wandering streams, open heathland. So, well, look, we've uh, we're straying a little bit away from your your first selection, but I'm very pleased the new forest is there. Um, yeah. As 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 I understand it, certainly rough. You, what you were saying was pretty right. I think William the First, the Conqueror himself, uh, 
wanted to have a forest and that's why it's there. Um, but his, uh, I think it's his son, William Rufus, is said to have been killed while out, out hunting in the forest. And uh, some people see that as vengeance uh, on the on the conquering Normans uh, for the brutal way they treated people, not not just in the south of England, but also in the north of England. And, um, and that was a sort of re- the revenge of the forest. And uh, uh, the rights of people to take things like uh, a certain amount of firewood and uh, feed their um their pigs on acorns and things like that has been preserved in later charters so so i'm very um, very pleased that you've included that as or starting your your wonders with uh, a lovely forest as it's become uh, but your second wonder shall we go on to that yes that is the telephone Right. Now, I've, we've already mentioned Childline, and we may come on to that, but it, it, you enjoy talking on the telephone? You think you see of it see it as a great uh, way of linking people together, or, or why the telephone? Well, there's something very special about being able to talk to people without seeing them. I think that's why radio is such a potent medium. Um, very personal, uh, very intimate. It's sort of voice to heart, if you see what I mean. And Childline and Samaritans and the Silver Line have all shown how it can really alleviate um, things like stigma. You know, if a child is ashamed and doesn't want to talk about the suffering they're enduring at home, they still feel safe talking to Childline on the telephone. I, yes, no, I, I follow. And of course, uh, the other thing you didn't mention, you might have done, is the uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, the confessional is always done without the um, the uh, the priest seeing the person who's gone to to confess, and and the other way around. So there's this, you know, hundreds of years of tradition then that goes behind this idea of anonymity. Um, but that's a very particular use of the telephone, the, the, the child line, Samaritans, and, and so forth. But that's. That came to your aid when you were setting up your charity. Yes, absolutely brilliant. Um, it was quite clear that because uh, we set up a helpline after one edition of That's Life, which may I say, Clive, I don't agree with you that the, the puns were weak. <laughs> well, uh, it's a, it was a compliment as much as an insult. <laughs> I, I would, look, it was, it was yeah. I would say, a little bit of an accident that you inherited the show because I think you were, you, were an on, you were a researcher, but somebody decided mm. to put researchers on the screen and then Bernard mm. Braden did some awful BBC thing, well, like advertising, was it margarine or, or pot plants or mm. something? And then he, so mm. off he went. And then there you were, you were, thrust forward so everybody you know has to have a chance but you certainly took it once it uh, the ball came into your hand well it was weird because I just loved making consumer programs it it had such an immediate contact with the viewers you know you would you would put out a topic whatever it was a, a dodgy car or as you say washing machine or hoover and by return of post do you remember post in those days things with stamps and envelopes we would get sackfuls of people saying well that is what happened to me or how about this other thing that happened to me so it was it was really seductive because you had this fantastic relationship with your viewers who were not writing to say, why is your hair so awful and, and you know, you've got a big nose and that frightful dress, or big teeth in my case. Um, they were talking to you about their lives, about things, yes. and also sending you wonderful jokes too. I mean, the talking dog, you know, and that oh. sort of thing. I Sausages. Mean, who knew? <laughs> Sausages. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> now, you see, younger <laughs> listeners will not know what the hell no, no, we're talking it's, about. It's quite, well, I mean, uh, I, I, t- t- pursuing a sort of serious point, you, having presented the programme, you weren't You're going to just say, oh, we'll do a programme about child abuse. You set up a child line, which has, you know, continued... To, and, uh, and and become more and more important, really, as, as as time has gone by, as we've learnt more and more about child abuse that was going on then and uh, it sadly is still going on now. Absolutely. And, um, and now, of course, it's changed a great deal over the last, last 35 years because um, we've got our online services so children can access us by email or with online chat and they do you know 75% of our contacts from children these days um, are online 
But we still get those crucial phone calls, you know, from the kids standing on a parapet over a motorway wanting to end their lives, you know, which happens. I remember I was in the counselling room when one of our counsellors took that call and we were absolutely on tenterhooks for 45 minutes until the kid allowed us to um, call the police. Yes. Well, as you, uh, were as much as everybody else, everybody at the BBC had to take um, take responsibility in a fact that, that, you know, Jimmy Savile was at the BBC for such a long time and evidently guilty of uh, most serious uh, abuse, which uh, not just the BBC, the BBC, the royal family, the government uh, ministers didn't spot. And uh, is, is, that's something that we all, I mean, of course, you knew him as well. And uh, were you ever minded to challenge him on anything or was it just... Ne- never crossed your mind? Well, there had been rumours when I joined television, when I was a researcher, there had been rumours, but it was all at a gossip level and there was no no one saying that he'd actually hurt them in any way. And I never worked with him except as a guest on Jim Will Fix It. Sometimes I would be there. I think I probably... I saw him at charity events, which he did a lot of, but I I never worked alongside him and I never knew him well. And he wore this impenetrable mask with catchphrases and, you know, all these strange phrases that he used. And this, he behaved like a clown, like a jester. And um, I don't think anybody really knew him well. We discovered that after his death. We discovered that nobody really knew him. Okay, well, look, I'm going to uh, let's go, let's move on to your next wonder. Um, a much happier story of a, a much better respected uh, broadcaster, and, uh, and one I think you may find a lot of people saying, Oh, yes, that's a wonder. So, what is your third wonder, Esther? My third wonder of the world is Sir David Attenborough. Yes. Uh, well, I don't think anybody could uh, query that. He's, um, I say, he's the closest we've got as a, a commoner who's respected as as much as a sort of a president or or a queen or a king. Um, so his um, career in broadcasting is, if I may say so, almost more impressive th- than your uh, career in broadcasting. <laughs> <laughs> There is no comparison, Clive. Much as I would love to compare myself with Sir David, I absolutely can't. I mean, his scholarship, his commitment to our planet, the way he absolutely understood television. You know, one of the things that I'm really grateful to him for, he brought Desmond Wilcox over to the BBC to make um, Man Alive for BBC Two. I mean, he he was responsible in his television career for creating so much fantastic programme making, introducing colour television into BBC Two. I have quite, a, quite an interesting tale about him. Um, when he was controller of BBC Two, he moved into what was then the sixth floor of Television Centre, where all the controllers were, the most senior people, men, of course, um, at that time in in the BBC in, in programme making. And he looked at them with interest. Um, and there were all these extraordinary Mandarin-style distinctions in the BBC. I remember when my late husband became head of department, he was told by the head of premises that he was now eligible to have full draw curtains instead of just the, the drapes that hang either side of the window. Anyway... David looked at all these strange regulations and then, just to see what would happen, he put a bottle of Malvern water on his desk and a couple of glasses and it took six days before all the other controllers had bottles of Malvern water and two glasses on their desk. Well, that's one way of <laughs> one way of establishing your your status. And what a fantastic career he's had! And he started as a sort of boyish enthusiast uh, on the television, and in his nineties, he he still sounds like a boyish enthusiast for the things that he's talking about, doesn't he? I think that's his secret. I mean, he he 
And the fact that he is, someone who works with him said he is the consummate storyteller. And if you look at the way he does his commentary, you know, he infuses natural history documentaries with suspense and with fascination because of the way he tells the story. And uh, who can forget that amazing sequence with the, um, do you remember the snakes and what were they, lizards or um, there were these strange little things that were trying to escape this river of snakes that were trying oh, yeah. to, to catch them. Um, do you remember that? I well, Racing I remember snakes. several different ones like that, then sort of, you know, turtles on the beach. And, and of course, him sitting down with silverback uh, gorillas, um, which again is... You know, just one of those things. He he was just sitting calmly and telling us about this. And everyone's thinking, well, most people think, oh, I wish I could be there with those gorillas. Some people think, oh, he wouldn't catch me risking that. But, you know, but everyone's enjoying it. And um, yes, there's a lot of oh, it's a lot of death and destruction in some of the sequences with animals eating each other as well as doing everything else with each other. <laughs> <laughs> and having it off with each other. Most recent series, my goodness, I mean... The disgraceful things that were happening. We we can take it <laughs> when it's when it's animals involved. Now you mentioned, um, uh, and again, I just want to make sure we're keeping uh, younger listeners this in. You said, oh, and he brought Desmond Wilcox uh, to to the BBC. Uh, Desmond Wilcox became your husband, uh, of course. You know, we, we know from everything you say about him, you you miss him now. He's no longer there. Um, but so we we have to put mark that up as an achievement uh, for Sir David Attenborough in your p- particular case uh, because that was the the, the romance that uh, that uh, uh, blossomed <laughs> <laughs> yeah that wasn't necessarily why I thought it was such a good decision I don't think he foresaw that but the fact was that that um, Desi was an extraordinary documentary filmmaker um, with the same sort of observant eye and fascination that actually David Attenborough has for the animal world um, Desi managed to enter people's lives and discover how they experienced issues which the BBC had only ever heard experts talk about, experts who were always at one remove. Desi got a lifetime achievement, sadly, posthumously, from the Grierson um, Trust, who are the the great arbiters of, of documentary filmmaking in this country. And it was because at the time when he started making documentaries, <clears throat> There were, there were huge, cumbersome cameras and all kinds of technical difficulties. And he really pioneered the use of 16mm cameras and being as inconspicuous as you could be so that people were able to relax and talk to you about the, the way they really felt. And he exposed all kinds of issues um, racism and uh, child abuse and all sorts of things at a time when, um, as I say, the BBC was, was, was rather, rather gr- too grand to listen to the people it was actually happening to. And Desi changed all that. And Man Alive won all kinds of awards. And it was David Attenborough that brought him to the BBC. Well, well done, David Rappen. And, and you and the BBC kind of nudged him into a more independent career because uh, it was it was thought not right that you and uh, Desmond should be in the same department. So he had he went off to be more independent, and that presumably transformed his career as well. That that process. Absolutely, and he made uh, David appears to be the running strand because he made the boy David um, series of programs as an independent, and that was extraordinary too. So. Yes, but but I'm really um, I'm really choosing David Attenborough as, as a wonder because I th- do think the greatest threat facing humanity is climate change. I'm quite pessimistic about whether we will actually persuade the great nations to give up fossil fuels and the climate to revert to what the planet needs. But if anybody can persuade them to, yes, I understand Greta has done brilliantly well. I'm a great fan of Greta, but I do think that David Attenborough has that authority and the knowledge, the scientific background, and has been in everyone's homes for so long that if anyone can persuade us to change our habits, he can. It comes down to this. The people alive now are the generation to come will look at this conference and consider one thing. 
Did that number stop rising and start to drop as a result of commitments made here? There's every reason to believe that the answer can be yes. If working apart, we are force powerful enough to destabilize our planet, surely working together, we are powerful enough to save it. In my lifetime, I've witnessed a terrible decline. In yours, you could and should witness a wonderful recovery. That desperate hope, ladies and gentlemen, delegates, excellency, is why the world is looking to you and why you are here. Thank you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We've, we've covered uh, perhaps uh, BBC quite a lot and serious topics. This may be one of the lighter uh, topics. I, I don't know. Your, your next one. My next one is musical theatre. Now, musical theatre divides the world, really. Are you a fan of musical theatre, Clive? Well, I am a bit. I, I interview a lot of people um, these days on the radio. I have done for years. And, quite, and I only interview them usually when they've got a, a book out or a play out or a film or a musical uh, on the go. So I've seen... For example, I have seen Legally Blonde, the musical, twice. And I don't, I'm not sure many men uh, have, uh, like me have done that. But um, So I've seen a big range of them. I wonder which, and they do come in, in different shapes and sizes. So are you talking about the classic sort of 1930s, 40s ones or the more recent ones, the, you know, the clever clogsy ones like Sweeney Todd or Hamilton? <laughs> or, or West Side Story, you know the ones that you know everyone knows the tunes. Or, which or the all the Andrew Lloyd Webber ones. You, you mean not quite single-handedly, but you know the ones that have sort of recreated the British uh, musical uh, along the way. Which, which ones do you go for? Well, I'm I really go for all of them. I I suddenly remember that the first time I was I went to live theatre when I was six was to. Musical theatre, it was Hansel and Gretel. And I gather I sat down in, in the theatre with my parents and the orchestra was tuning up. And when they finished, I said, is it over now? Can we go? And they explained that there was more to come. And I fell in love with it. A little known fact, well, maybe you know it and I know it, that um, Hansel and Gretel was written by Engelbert Humperdinck. Yes, but not the not the singer of our generation. <laughs> no, and bless his heart, he was named after the composer yes, of Hansel yes. and Gretel. Yeah, yes, yes. It worked. Anyway, I went from Hansel and Gretel, and then uh, I think the next one I actually fell deeply in love with was Carmen Jones. Extraordinary musical. Oscar Hammerstein and Bizet. Absolutely brilliant. But then I began to devour them, um, whether it was Oklahoma or King and I, when I was 10, we went to live in the States because my father was working with the United Nations at the time. And I actually saw Yul Brynner and Gertrude Lawrence in The King and I. Yeah, Yul Brynner made a sort of career out of it, apart from being in the film version. He did the stage version a lot, didn't he? He was the sexiest thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> and I noticed that at 10. And I also noticed that Gertrude Lawrence couldn't sing a note. 
And I think she drove Richard Rogers mad because she had tremendous charisma, but oh my goodness, she couldn't sing Hello Young Lovers uh, at all. But it didn't matter all that much because Yule was stamping around in his bare feet and saying, shall we dance? And then there were all the others, you know, the the Oklahomas and uh, Carousels and South Pacific. And Desi and I once went to New York just to take in the musicals and we saw Kiss Me Kate, extraordinary, wonderful co-filter musical. And uh, I come to wive it wealthily in Padua. And I hate men. It's deeply politically incorrect. Deeply. They have real problems with it these days. And so on and on and on through the years. And then, of course, Andrew Lloyd Webber, as you rightly say, and Cats and Evita and Phantom of the Opera and so on. And uh, and now Hamilton. And uh, and yes, Sondheim, he's interesting, isn't he? Because... Um, I'm not a great fan of Sweeney Todd. It's a bit bloodthirsty for me, but I actually adore. Well, really, somebody ki- killing people and eating them, uh, putting them into pies. You find that <laughs> bloodthirsty? <laughs> it's a Tiny jolly. Bit. It's a jolly night out at the theatre. <laughs> yeah. Mm, yes. Oh, did you see Imelda Staunton in Gypsy? Did yeah, you see yeah. that? Oh, yes, yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah. So, is that something you'd like to have done yourself? Would you? Could you? Could you ever seen yourself performing? on stage, or in a musical in particular? I did fancy myself as Dorothy Dandridge in the, the lead in uh, Common Jones. I did I did see myself in that role, and I sang You Go For Me and I'm Taboo as I ran up and down the hockey pitch. But actually, I've got a, a, a slightly wavery baritone voice, so I don't think it was a career for me. And certainly the dance, oh, my goodness, no, no. So I'm, I'm, I'm am very happy to be a deeply enthusiastic member of the audience. All right. So, well, you've covered most of the musicals. Uh, even you know, Hamilton is pretty up to date. But, you know, sort of Les Miserables, Book of Mormon, uh, Chicago, the, 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 those ones that have been big hits in the last few years. Do, do, you, do you turn up to first nights or just slip in, you know, as and when you can get tickets when they've settled into a long run? I vary. I vary. Actually, we have another one of my Seven Wonders who wrote um, a uh, a musical. It didn't start out as a musical, and it's the only time I've ever said, please, to my agent, can you see if I can go to the first night? Because I just wanted to see the producers, the musical right. by Mel Brooks. Well, we'll save we'll save him to the end, I think. Uh, so, okay. but but the, as you're drawing attention, there's a little bit of overlap there. So you're so. Your entertainment generally is is obviously very much part of your your makeup, uh, but either providing it, you know, with the jokes in amongst the serious stories, or enjoying other people acting, singing, dancing, or whatever. Yeah, I think it lengthens our lives. Actually, when um, people ring the silver line, older people um, on their own, the question, the killer question, I ask them is, "What do you do for fun?" Because I think we need fun. We really do. And when you're living on your own, it's quite difficult. And that's why I think some of our current entertainment shows like Strictly are providing a really important social service. I mean, allowing people to get swept away by music or laughter or both. Mm. Well, that's another of those... You know, unforced. It seems so natural now to say to you, strictly, uh, strictly come dancing as an example of, you know, big audiences and great entertainment. But when it, somebody came up with it, it can't have been obvious that uh, this was going to command a big audience, getting a number of people who might not be able to dance at all to learn how to dance in front of the audience's eyes, and all the sort of flamboyant costumes and people just, uh, you know, love it. It's, it's one of the the biggest shows the BBC has on its books. Absolutely. And I don't think, I mean, a very clever young woman came up with the idea and uh, they put it to the BBC and and Bill Cotton, of whom I've spoken before, um, he knew it was a good idea. I don't know that Brucey did at the beginning. He was a bit worried about it, but was convinced. I mean, he was worried about it because he was a, you know, a comedian. He didn't see, you know, what role he had to play in it. But um I think Bill convinced him and said it was going to be a huge programme. And, of course, it's gone around the world. I mean, it's it's made fortunes for the BBC. You know, it's um, a format that brings in so much 
money, that it's it's a commercial property as well as being the thing that endears the BBC to the great viewing public. Sure. Well, I think Bruce Forsyth was was the perfect host for that in a sense because he, although he was a perfectly good TV presenter, he really wanted to be Sammy Davis Jr. He wanted to be the song and dance man on stage doing things, but he kept being dragged back to being somebody <laughs> who presented TV programs, which it's a worthy enough uh, calling, but it, it's odd enough it wasn't really what he wanted to do. Um, now, now you've mentioned Bill Cotton and other uh, TV executives along the way. I suppose it, it just occurs to me that. Did, did you not want to rise up the ranks of uh, the executives and the controller level of the BBC would, or, or other broadcasters? Would you not have been good at picking winners or making decisions and leading people? And I know in a previous interview, I must have accused you of not delegating, but it's not delegating. It's, you, it's the hard decision making. Did you, were you never tempted to that? Well, Bill actually asked me to apply to be controller one, I would have been the first woman in that role. The first controller of BBC One was on a plate, offered to you, and what did you say? I went home and I said to Desi, what do you think? And he said, I don't think you'd like it because you like actually having contact with programme making you like getting your hands dirty. You like you like doing it. You don't want to commission it. You want to do it. And I I didn't know what to think. And but I did know that it, I mean because I'd seen my friend Michael Gray in the in the job, and I knew it was a twenty four seven job, and I would have to give up what I was doing for Childline, and that was another problem. So I did that thing. I I I went. Bill called me in to hear my decision. And I wrote two letters, one saying I'd love, yes, to uh, apply for this role. And then the other letter said, I'm terribly sorry, but I'm not going to apply for this role. So this is like Boris Johnson deciding on Brexit, writing two articles, one pro and one against. And then, and then the moment came and I had to reach into my handbag and decide which letter to pull out. Do I regret it? A bit of me does. A bit of me thinks it's really wimpy of me to have done that. Well, I can see you might regret it, but it's not one of those deep, awful regrets when you, you think I've made this ghastly mistake. It's just you you missed out on making that discovery of what it would have been like. And it might have been awful. And in 18 months, you could have just said, oh, no, I don't like this. And like David Attenborough, you know, resigned and gone your way. So you, you perhaps did miss out on a, an interesting opportunity. I think it was wimpy. I do think it was wimpy. I think I was frightened of failure. Well, I haven't got the courage to call you wimpy, uh, Esther, but uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, but I see what you mean. Um, you strayed again away, uh, which is uh, all for the good, from musical theatre. Have you got a particular um, mu- musical you would like to pick up? You, you mentioned Stephen Sondheim, but not Sweeney Todd, but he's got plenty of other, you know, like Company and Follies and uh, Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum uh, or, or, or maybe West Side Story. Is that what I'm just suggesting? West Side Story. West Side, West Side Story. Story. I think if if you're looking for the best musical ever written, and it's it's a very it, it it's a hot topic. People people come to blows deciding what are the top ten musicals and which one is the best. And I know Andrew Lloyd Webber says South Pacific, which I can never understand, but he that's his favorite. My favorite West Side Story because I think the combination of Stephen Sondheim's lyrics and Leonard Bernstein's score and Jerome Robbins' uh, choreography and, and you know, this amazing book, you know, set in New York. I just think, and, you know, Shakespeare wrote this fantastic plot. I just think it, you can't get better than that. But there are an awful lot of wonderful ones and I do vary. I do have, you know, a soft spot for a lot of others, but I think I would pick West Side Story. <laughs> over South Pacific because uh, however, however good the songs are I'm not sure the uh, the current feeling about the world is 
quite in tune with uh, the attitudes in the South Pacific, whereas West Side Story is kind of a universal story, isn't it? On to your fifth wonder. We're still in the area of, I suppose, of enjoyment, but uh, what is your fifth wonder? My fifth one is Chagall. Wonderful, wonderful artist. Extraordinary human being. Well, I'm I'm very I'm very pleased you uh, made this selection because I'm I'm aware of his name. I'm and I've certainly seen plenty of his paintings, but I'd never applied my mind to his life and to you know where he stands in the the world of art. So um, I've I've tried to catch up with you, but can you just explain you know what his life story was? People may think of him as a French artist, but he started in in Russia or Belarus. He did. He was a Jew and uh, grew up surrounded by horrible anti-Semitism. I mean, his mother only just managed to get him into school because Jewish boys weren't allowed to have secondary education. I mean, the anti-Semitism he was surrounded by. Um, And this is the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century in Russia or Belarus, uh, yeah. This was just this was blatant. It wasn't it wasn't subtle um, no. micro micro uh, intrusions. This was absolutely you can't you need a pass to go there. You can't do that. These professions aren't open to you. That sort absolutely. of anti-Semitism, racism. Absolutely. And there was violence. There was violent uh, anti-Semitism. He once, you know, was nearly murdered by a gang in the street who thought he was Jewish and he had to deny it. But his art was was transcended. Um, all racial division, all religious division, even though, even though as a Jew, I can recognize Jewish themes in his beautiful pictures. They have this poetry, they have this idealism. Um, I think in one of the Richard Curtis films, I think it might be Notting Hill Gate, somebody gives someone a Chagall um, because it's the most romantic picture. It has love and and music and everything symbolised in a sort of dream, floating in a dream. I just love him. And, and they say that his temperament was so spiritual that he was able to overcome, you know, the anger and violence around him and just move into a sphere of love and humanity and caring for people. Just a delightful, delightful man whose character and personality is perfectly um, captured in his art. And I have one anger with myself because there's there's a cathedral quite near to where I am now, the cathedral in Chichester. I now realise has a stained glass window by Chagall because he, he did quite a lot of stained glass. And I've never seen it, and I should have gone to have a look at it because I'm such a fan. Yeah, he's done, yeah he did lots, didn't he? Um, in, in Reims, Metz, uh, the Art Institute of Chicago, all, all sorts of places. I so well, that's something for you to you know to look forward to, I suppose. Um, um, it, it's, it's maybe considered slightly odd that a Jewish artist would be doing the the uh, stained glass windows for Christian cathedrals, but as as you say, he thought his work transcended all races but he is it right one of his paintings was the basis or the inspiration for the musical to go back to musical the fiddler on the roof absolutely yeah so that's that's two of your your wonders could be linked there and uh, so that's that's not everybody who in one art form inspires uh, another but uh, um, so he did come to or he did go to to Paris and was what we describe him as a modernist uh, painting uh, artist. Is it, would that be the way to describe him? I suppose so. Um, I'm I'm not a great student of schools of art, you know, but, but for me, he's just romantic. Um, I had a funny experience because um, I was looking, uh, when I was a fat cat in television, um, I was looking at a catalogue of some auction house and I saw there were some... Chagall prints that were being sold, limited editions, that might, might almost have been within my wallet bounds, if you see what I mean. So I went along and I got the time wrong. And um, 
what was being auctioned was hilarious. They were little squiggles of this or canvases being slit with razor blades or tiny bits of noughts and crosses written in pencil in the corner. And I rapidly saw that if there was any relationship at all between the title of the work of art and the image on the canvas, then they'd get something like, they'd be sold for something like 15000 20000 If there was absolutely no sense, no logic, at all in it, they were going for 250000 And I wanted to stand up and say, you're all being conned rotten. This isn't art at all. But I realised that if I did such a thing, I'd be lynched because everybody in that room, their whole wealth depended on people thinking that scribbling knots and crosses in the corner of a canvas was worth £250,000. Right. Well, did you ever... Like that. No. Did you ever get to a sale of, of Chagall prints or indeed no. uh, uh, actual uh, you know, canvases? Uh, I, I'm assuming your That's Life income would have easily um, covered uh, a couple of uh, old masters. And uh, I'd like to think you've got some of them on your, on your wall in the New Forest. <laughs> Sadly, no. No, but never mind. Never mind. I've got lovely art books of Chagall and, you know, he's just extraordinary. Yes. Well, I'm so I'm sure the BBC is just not paying its its, its presenters enough. <laughs> but, uh, well, in those uh, days, you see, these <laughs> days, oh, my goodness, you know, they own their own production companies. Well, so they get a slice of the action. That's a good plan. These days. Yeah. You're, you're straying into the area of giving me advice as to what I should have done uh, rather than... Uh, <laughs> we're going to have to move on because we're, we're running out of time. Okay. We won't get through the seven wonders. Now, okay. uh, but talking of luxury living, your sixth wonder is a very luxurious place in France. Saint-Paul-de-Vence. In the cemetery of Saint-Paul-de-Vence, you will find the grave of Chagall. Oh, right. So it's an extension of your, your previous one. Your previous well, it's, wonder. It, it's serendipity, really. Yeah. I mean, I chose um, Saint-Paul-de-Vence because it's beautiful. Uh, there's something about the south of France. And if you love the south of France, then Saint-Paul-de-Vence is, for me, the perfect south of France little medieval town on a mountaintop with the most extraordinary restaurant called Colomb d'Or, which my late husband absolutely adored. And you sit under vines and have the most gorgeous food and the most wonderful view. And then you amble indoors to powder your nose, going past all these amazing pictures by Picasso and Braque and everybody you name who went to eat there. And instead of paying the bill, they presented the owner of the restaurant with one of their wonderful pictures. Yeah, well, I've, I've been there just the once and I tried that. I said, well, I'll do you a painting. But uh, they, <laughs> <laughs> apparently I'd have been there for three years painting before I got anything like the cost of the meal. So, um, no, I, I was rather expecting you to say you've got a house in St. Paul de Vance as well, apart from the New Forest. And, but but it's, a, it's a whole, there's nothing quite as luxurious as the the Côte d'Azur or the the south of Riviera or whatever section of that, and they, it is a very uh, it's a luxurious it's a village, isn't it, rather than a town? Or a very luxurious part of the of that very luxurious part of the world. Well, you call it luxurious, and I think I mean if you have a look at some of these enormous yachts that the billionaires sail around the world in. To me, that's luxury. The wonderful thing about the south of France is that it's about sunshine and orange blossom and scenery and fantastic, beautiful wine and gorgeous cuisine. And it's about the art of living. It's not really about buying stuff to prove how rich you are. It's, it, it's, about, it's about just enjoying the gorgeousness that nature can provide and that skill and art can provide. You know, there's lovely museums, art galleries. It's They talk about the civilisation française, and that I remember having to learn about that at school. And to me, this is all about civilisation. Saint-Paul-de-Vence in the south of France is one of the best-preserved and prettiest medieval villages in all of Europe. This is really a very special town. 
It's an old village with a fortified wall around it with some stone structures that date back to the 15th and 16th centuries. And it had fallen apart in recent times, early 20th century, it was quite dilapidated. Some of the old buildings were falling down. But it has been fixed up like new. It's amazing because the art industry has moved in. There are 50 galleries, workshops, and studios here of the highest quality. Uh, certainly, uh, but it's a civil civilization that does come at a certain uh, price uh, if you're uh, lunching or uh, hoping to um, take home one of the paintings from the wall. Um, so I can't I can't say it's not a wonder of the world, and and it's uh, it's, it's it deserves its place on your list. And but we're going to go on uh, to your seventh wonder, and you've already told us uh, what that is or who it is because it's Mel Brooks. Um, so tell, tell me why Mel Brooks is a wonder of the world as far as you're concerned. Because he is so funny. There's another 90-year-old. I'm sorry to bang on, but I think, you know, I know from the silver line how many older people feel that they're past their sell-by dates, that, that nobody cares about them anymore, they've... That, they're not needed by humanity. They're not even, one of our callers said, you know, when he puts down the phone, he feels like he's joined the human race. Awful lot of older people don't think they have a part to play in the human race. Well, have a look at Mel Brooks. So funny, still so funny. And I think if you're having a bad day, if things are going against you, put on a DVD of the producers. Yes. Um, well, Do you that's agree? That, yeah, certainly, yes. Uh, it's an excellent uh, play. Then, f uh, well, film. Then it was a play. That's a musical. Um, it's and as people may may know, the whole the whole premise is that the a dodgy producer oversells the play he's going to put on uh, a show called The Produce, uh, it, where it, which is called Springtime for Hitler. And because it's about Hitler, it's obviously not going to succeed and he'll pocket all their money. But no, it is a success because people see it as funny. And uh, so he, he weaves his magic through, well, bad taste, uh, fun and dancing, uh, jokes, <laughs> hysteria half the time. Um, no, it's an and, and, you know, the, the director he picks for the... For the the musical he hopes is going to be a gigantic flop, so he'll never have to give the money back to the little old ladies he's seduced into uh, into funding this production. Anyway, it turns out it's a bit of a spoiler. I mean, I I remember the first time I re I saw it, and I saw. <laughs> You remember the audience sitting there like the three wise monkeys with their hands over their eyes and their mouths and their ears. Oh gosh! And 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 the, the accountant Gene Wilder and the producer um, Zero Marcel go off and. Uh, drink each other's health with joy at the bar, thinking they've got an absolute guaranteed flop. And then <laughs> out they go, and the whole audience is in stitches and adoring it, and, and they're ruined, and they end up, yeah, they end up in jail. Well, it, uh, but it's, it's, you know that it was Peter Sellers that alerted the great British public to the wonder of this film. He arrived on a Michael Parkinson talk show wearing a German helmet and a, a German overcoat. And then he started to quote some of the best lines. Um, Churchill, terrible painter. I can't do it. Terrible painter. Hitler, there was a painter. He could paint whole flat and whatever it was. It was absolutely wonderful. And the audience was in stitches and, and Parky was, you know, killing himself with laughter. And Peter Sellers was saying, I didn't make this up. This is a film by Mel Brooks, which he had been shown. I think it was not really on release. And that's what alerted the great British public. And then they began to distribute the film because everybody was so frightened of it. Yes. For well, all the I, reasons you've I wonder if I wonder if he could make it today um, and be joking around with Adolf Hitler and jokes about the, the Nazi party. Is uh, Would it be ruled out as being too distasteful for uh, the 21st century? Oh, well, you see, John Cleese had to cancel himself because he did um, a Hitler march, didn't he, in one of the... I th I, I, the universities have, have gone balmy, I think. Something, something's going wrong. But I did go to the first night of the producers, 
and it was even ruder than the film. This is the the play, the the stage version uh, oh. that was on fairly recently, a few years ago, wasn't it? Absolutely. And then Mel Brooks was there, and he went up on the stage, and he got a standing ovation for about ten minutes. And he said, I thought you British were supposed to be so reticent. And we all laughed at ourselves because the joy of seeing that man. And, of course, Blazing Saddles. Wonderful about racism. Wonderful film. And Young Frankenstein. And, I mean, Alan Yentob interviewing him because Alan Yentob loves him. Alan Yentob, who incidentally acts that's life, not that I bear grudges, once promised me that he would introduce me to Mel Brooks. Did he? No, he did not. These television so-and-sos who you don't can't fulfill trust them. their promise. Yeah. You cannot trust them, Clive. You would have well, found that too. Well, certainly. Uh, but I have met Mel Brooks. In fact, I interviewed him. <gasps> and um, it, it was more of a sort of in- improvised skit more than an interview. When I, If <sighs> I say so myself, it was funny. Because he, amongst his other things he did, was this sort of improvisation he used to do uh, with Carl Reiner, the 2,000-year-old uh-huh. man. But we did a different thing. It was to do with wine tasting. And I think, I, now I think about it, I'm sure he'd done it lots before. But he, he was hysterically funny. And I always felt slightly guilty about it because he was very, very funny. And then we showed a clip of a film of his called Robin Hood Men in Tights. And the clip uh, was very funny. But uh, I don't think there was anything else funny in that entire film. <laughs> it wasn't one of his best. So anyone seeing it, I'd like to think, oh, this is funny. Clive Anderson with uh, with uh, Mel Brooks. Oh, and there's that funny clip. Oh, we must go and see Robin Hood Men in Tights. And it wasn't. Uh, quite as good as uh, the other films that you've been enthusing about, and I'm happy to enthuse with you about that. Um, and, and of course, he was a great chat show guest, actually. And, and oddly enough, he was oh. married to Anne Bancroft for many, many years, who famously froze. And I think it was would it be Parker with uh, Terry? I think it was with Terry Wogan. He she just couldn't think of anything to say at all, and that, so presumably she lets him or she let him do a lot of the talking at home and wasn't quite as interested in, in showing off and being funny but um, uh, there it is Mel Brooks. Our like nation it. now sir our nation is in a serious economic situation. Yes. We have inflation, the balance of oh, payments, boy. the balance of trade, oh, the deficits. Oh boy. What would you suggest oh, boy. Knowing, knowing what you do Woof. about the history Woof. of the economy Woof! The, the, Woof. The, we in trouble. The history of the economy of the world. I'm saying woof. Yes. Because we, America's are low ebb now. We're in low ebb. I know. The I am socio-economic asking. socioeconomic problems that we are faced. I am asking. The magnitude of them. I am asking you for help and a solution. Uh, Do you have one? I have one solution. Yes. I say this is the time to sell America. Sell it. To who? <laughs> sell America to who? I'd say sell it to Japan. <laughs> No, I just... They're going to get it in 10 years anyway. We might as well sell and make a profit. And that's your solution to yes. our economic problem. That's my solution. I don't think it's a valid one, sir. Well, I didn't major in that school. <laughs> well, an excellent choice to end your selection with. Um... Uh, we've 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 kind of run out of time to develop that further. I think you've given the um, uh, enthusiasm for him uh, full reign. So so well done to you and well done to him. I have to select um, your the, the wonder of wonders of all the ones that you have uh, oh. uh, gone uh, gone with. And I'm I'm tempted by several of your wonders, but I don't think I can possibly uh, look beyond Sir David Attenborough, uh, which could because he is such a wonder of the world. Um, mm. he, he, he relates to you and to a lesser extent me in our television careers. Um, and I think everybody in the country really would uh, tip their hat to, to Sir David Attenborough. They, the, uh, he's the only name they could give to that boat, which everyone wanted to call uh, uh, Boaty McBoatface, and they weren't going to do that. So they had to uh, go with the David Attenborough instead. Um, but uh, thank thank you very much, Esther, for sharing your seven wonders with me. Uh, I've chosen the wonder of wonders from your list of seven, and the one that struck me as particularly wonderful was uh, Sir David Attenborough. So thank you very much. I look forward to you being a, a wonder on somebody else's list in, in due course. <laughs> Unlikely. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know. If only you'd taken that BBC One job, I think oh. you you would have been a because <laughs> you were. Um, um, we, we've hardly mentioned it, but you were an inspiration, I suppose, to the feminist cause. In that it, there weren't so many 
shows built around a woman as there were built around men in the time you started. And it's much more uh, normal or usual today to have uh, women in exactly the same sort of position. So do you see yourself as striking a blow on behalf of uh, the sisterhood? What I felt was if I failed, I would be doing damage to the prospects of other women who also needed and deserved promotion. So there was quite a heavy responsibility on me. And you asked me if I was driven. I do think, in a sense, that thought drove me on, that I had to work harder, do better, because... Um, if I didn't, the next women coming up who would be much more talented and deserving of promotion would not get the opportunities. All right. Well, I, I, I think you blazed a trail, uh, blazing saddles on the trail, uh, helping <laughs> that by, by Mel Brooks. Uh, thank you very much for joining me, Dame Esther Ranson. If you enjoyed listening to My Seven Wonders, it would be wonderful if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform, site or provider you found us on. But uh, thank you very much for listening. Seven Wonders with Clive Anderson is a stack production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the Acast Creator Network. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.